Without any further ado, I want to introduce Danielle Houle. She's been serving as a campus uh, missionary for a long time. So let's welcome Danielle, and she's going to tell us all kinds of things that are going on. Well, hello, Good Hope. It's an honor to be with you this morning. As Pastor Mike said, my name is Danielle Houle, and I've been a campus missionary at the University of Minnesota Duluth since 2009. So I actually was a student at UMD, and I met my husband, got involved in the ministry of Chi Alpha, and then got married after college. So the first job I had post-college was in youth ministry in the Twin Cities, but my husband and I felt a pull back to Duluth in 2008. So we started serving on campus, volunteering again, and I felt the Lord calling me to become a missionary to the campus after that. So I've been doing this for about 12 years. And we have two little girls. They're both seven years old. People often ask me that, but yes, they are twins. And they'll be heading to second grade this fall. I'm pursuing my ordination level in ministry. And so part of that experience is getting to work with Good Hope Church under Pastor Mike. Um, And it's been just an honor to be able to see what's happening here and be involved with that. Many of you have been following along with a sermon series that Pastor Mike has been doing called Lessons Learned, and I'm going to be carrying on with that and just sharing a little bit about lessons I've learned in my faith journey growing up. So unlike Pastor Mike, I did grow up in the church. As a little girl, I remember asking Jesus into my heart at a summer VBS, and I grew up going to church every Sunday, most Wednesdays. Spent a lot of time in Sunday school and youth group, but I still ended up with some faulty theology. Now, it wasn't necessarily anyone's fault. It's just something that happens to us sometimes when we grow up in the church. And in my mind, it went something like this. If I do the right things, then my life will go the way that I want it to. Now, no one explicitly taught me this, but this message was formed in a lot of the environments I had growing up. You know, when we think about being a kid, we often have rewards and privileges at school for good behavior, and we also have that at home. And we're also warned about the consequences of what can happen if we do get off track. And so it made sense for me as a young person that doing the right thing would lead to the right path. And this mindset also meant that any blessing or favor I received from God was pretty much chalked up to how well I was doing, if I was doing everything right, if I was working hard enough. And as a teenager and college student, I followed this transactional line of thinking. If I worked hard enough, if I did well in school, if I was serving, and if I said no to things that were pulling me away from God, then things would work out. It worked for a while, but at that point in my life, I hadn't really experienced any real trials. So One way to describe this type of thinking is in terms of a contract with God. If I do everything right, then God will give me the life I want. But if I sin or make mistakes, then my life will go poorly. This seems like a pretty simple concept, right? (laughs) Now, it's true that our behavior has consequences. And sometimes in the church, we talk about this principle as the principle of reaping and sowing. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses use this principles to teach the Israelites about God and about what kind of behavior was right versus wrong. God knew that the people didn't know how to figure this out for themselves and that they would need some pretty clear instruction. 
So right before they entered the promised land, uh, Moses gave a final speech to the Israelites. And this is in Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 2. Moses told the people, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And then several verses later in verse 15, Moses says, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. So at this point in history, humanity had already chosen sin over God's ways. And in the book of Romans, Paul actually talks about this concept of the earth being destroyed by sin, saying, the earth was subject to frustration. It was a warped version of the beautiful and perfect earth that God had created. Humans had already chosen their own way over God's way in the garden. They had chosen to listen to the serpent instead of God's instructions. And so even after they were kicked out of the garden, they experienced a lot of hardship and conflict and destruction through the descendants of Adam and Eve. So when we look at these laws, it seems very much like this is how we should live. Do these things and then don't do these. And I want to say it's absolutely true that we will suffer the consequences of our own sin when we decide to break God's laws and follow our own way. But it's actually much more complicated than that. Even the most devoted followers of God like Abraham, Moses, or David experienced hard things in their life because we live in a broken world. And not only are we affected by our own sins, but we're also affected by the sins of other people and even people that we've never met before. If we make a direct correlation between our personal actions and the rewards we get, number one, we're full of pride because then it becomes about us and how well we're doing and if we're doing enough. And number two, we mistakenly believe that our life as believers is meant to be easy. So following Jesus equates to a really great life. And on the flip side of that, we can sometimes conclude that if things are not going well for us, then God must be mad at us or he's punishing us or he's punishing the people around us and letting them get what they deserve. This is exactly what the religious leaders and even Jesus' disciples believed centuries ago. So we're going to take a look at that. John chapter 9. And I'm going to start reading verse 1, where Jesus heals a man who was born blind. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, let's pause there. How did the man become blind? You know, the scriptures don't actually tell us that. But it does say that many people at the time believed that sin was causing the man to be blind or it was the sin of his parents. But Jesus doesn't even seem to be concerned about this. He appears on the scene. He's not asking those questions. He isn't concerned if the blind man has followed all of the Jewish law. He simply sees the need and moves forward with compassion. As was his nature, Jesus came into a broken situation and restored life to the way that it was meant to be. However, now the Pharisees are angry. They believe that this whole situation is another part of the hoax for Jesus to gain followers. And so they begin by interrogating the blind man and his parents. So we're going to pick up on verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. 
Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether or not he is a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. So the Pharisees are very angry at this response. And instead of actually listening to the man, they, they can't make sense of what's happening in the situation because it doesn't fit into the religious paradigm that they have developed. They shut down the discussion by again focusing on the man's sin and thinking that that was the cause of his blindness. In verse 34, they say, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now, hold on. <laughs> Not many of us would claim that somebody's medical difficulties were a result of their own sin or the sin of their parents. But how often do we allow external circumstances to dictate our view of God and others? If I get what I want, then God must be loving and faithful. But if life is hard, then God is distant and unloving. Similarly, if someone gets a promotion or a new car, we say they are blessed but if a family is struggling with financial problems or dealing with difficulties with their children, there must be something that caused that and made that happen, probably some fault of their own. Now, this theology does not line up in the Bible. If we got what we deserved based on merit, the sin of our hearts would automatically disqualify us from being in the very presence of God. Paul is very careful to point this out in Romans chapter 3 saying, no one is righteous. Romans 3.9 says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And that includes us now. We are a part of the Gentiles, people who are outside of the Jewish law and culture. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. The Bible never tells us that following God is going to be easy. It doesn't say follow Jesus and your life will work out for you. Even though sometimes we like to use verses like Psalm 37, 4 as a token promise that we'll get the things we want if we follow God. In fact, Jesus says the opposite of this many times. In John 16, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. And in John 15, verse 18 and 19, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. 
If you belong to the world, it will love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Jesus was the most perfect human being who walked the earth, and yet even still, he suffered many times through hunger, through loneliness, through pain and disappointment, through persecution and a cruel death on earth. This tears apart every works-based, transactional theology that we might have. Now, as a young believer, there were two things that were missing from my understanding. Number one, the reality of living in a broken world, where for thousands of years, humans have chosen to turn away from God, destroying both God's creation and each other. And number two, the real existence of a spiritual enemy whose primary territory is here on earth. Not only that, but the devil's entire purpose is to steal, kill, destroy, and tell us lies about God and ourselves. I am stepping into my 14th year in ministry and just celebrated 14 years of marriage with my husband. And I can tell you, it has not always been easy. Sometimes people think that pastors avoid any kind of pain or hardship in their life, but I can tell you that that's not true. In 14 years, I've also walked alongside many faithful people who have gone through very difficult things. Sexual abuse, mental health crises, cancer and serious illness, divorce or divorced parents, infertility, death of a sibling, a spouse, a child, car accidents, lost jobs, miscarriages, and financial ruin. And in my own life, I've struggled through financial hardship, job changes, marital conflict, and health issues. I can tell you that I haven't always handled these challenges well. It's very tempting to go to other things instead of going to God. And our natural response when things don't work out the way we want them to is often anger and frustration. But I realize the question I should be asking is not, why aren't things working out for me? But how do I respond when the devil tries to lie to me about God, myself, and others? What do I know to be true about God? And how can I see the good things of God in the midst of trial and hardship? Another part of my story starts in 2014 when I found out I was pregnant with twin girls. Now, my husband and I had been trying to have children for a while, so this was a huge shock. He was very excited, and I was absolutely terrified. As the pregnancy went along, things were growing great. Every doctor appointment said I was right on track, and my due date was supposed to be September 19th. But suddenly one day in late May, I started having contractions. I called the hospital, and they told me to come in right away. Funny story on the side. I was home alone when this happened, and I was trying to call my husband, and I could not get him to answer the phone. So I got in the car and drove myself to the hospital, finding out later that the reason that he didn't answer the phone was at that exact time he was flipped over in a canoe in Thompson Lake and his phone was out of service. So instead, I drove myself to the hospital and when I arrived, I was told of the severity of the situation. The doctors right away gave me steroids and tried to keep the babies inside. Now this worked for about a week. But after that, the contraction started again. And on June 8th, I delivered twin girls that were 1.8 pounds and 1.9 pounds at birth. Now, I can tell you that there is absolutely nothing that could have prepared me for that experience. What followed was four and a half months in the NICU, including a two and a half month air transfer to Children's Hospital in Minneapolis. 
where Grant and I had a temporary apartment at the Ronald McDonald House. When we finally came home, the long journey was just beginning, especially for me as a new mom. We had weekly doctor visits to our home. The girls had some feeding issues. We were struggling to get them to gain weight. And there were a number of developmental hurdles to watch closely until the girls were finally discharged from the NICU follow-up clinic at age three. I'm thrilled to tell you today that Eden and Hope are healthy, happy, normal girls. In fact, they were doing so well that the doctors gave us the okay to put them in kindergarten at age five with an early June birthday instead of waiting until they turned six. One question I often get asked is, how did you handle that experience? And honestly, though, it was extremely difficult. The only thing that we could do was cling to the promises of God, that he is still a good God, even in the midst of hard things, that he was still near to us, even when things were, were challenging and we didn't understand what was happening, that he did not cause bad things to happen, but he is a God of restoration. And he's able to take even the worst circumstances that have happened to us and work them out for something good. He can bring something good out of dead things. Through this experience, I did feel the peace of God. I would often sing worship songs in the hospital room and pray for Hope and Eden. And I was even able to minister to other people that were struggling at the hospital or the Ronald McDonald House. Which, looking back now, I know it was only a result of a unique empowerment of the Holy Spirit to give me strength and positivity when I really felt like I had nothing to offer. So this sounds kind of like a happily ever after story, but I know that there are things outside of my control that will happen in the future, and there might even be things that are more difficult than this. And I realize that it's the way that we respond to what happens that makes the difference. So in the early years of my ministry and marriage, I often let the devil tell me lies about myself and about God and others. When trials would come, all I felt was frustration, disappointment, and anger that things were not going the way that I wanted them to. I'm trying to do everything right, so why aren't things working out, I thought. Have you ever felt that way? If you're hearing those complaints in your heart, I want to remind you that the devil's entire purpose is to convince us that God is not good, God is not for us, and we'd be better off apart from him. When we think in these terms, we view God as someone who is punishing and distant. He can't be trusted, and he certainly isn't faithful to any kind of promises. Thankfully, this is not the God of the Bible. It doesn't match the character of Jesus, who is the full representation of the nature and character of God. 1 John 4, verse 8 and 10 talks about this. John says, God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And in Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 5, Paul also talks about this. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. When we're going through difficult things, it can be really hard to hear messages about the goodness of God. And if that's you right now and you're going through a difficult season, emotionally, there might be some disconnect for you. But I want to say that that's okay. And that doesn't change the character of who God is. God himself is unchanging. 
His love for you is everlasting. His ability to take broken things and bring restoration and beauty is unmatched compared to anything else. And when we surrender our lives to God's care, we can take heart knowing that this earth is not our permanent home. I want to read one final verse from John. Jesus gives this as a reminder to us before he went to the cross. This is John 16, verse 20 through 22. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Jesus says in verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. God, I thank you that your love for us is great. I thank you that this earth is not the end of our life. You have an eternity in heaven waiting for us where there is no more pain, no tears, no suffering. I thank you that you sent your son to rescue us from darkness. And we can hold to the promise that there will be restoration for things that have been taken for us. There will be justice for things that have been wronged in our lives. Thank you that you are God who is kind, loving. You are faithful to your promises. We give you this day in your name. Amen. Well, I'm just so thankful to have Danielle here to share with us today. What a beautiful message. You know, so many people go through hardships in this life, and it's, it's bad enough going through a hardship, but then when that is tied in with your relationship with God, if it begins to push your relationship with God into a bad place, then you've got the hardship and you've got the faith crisis. And I don't want to see anyone have both a hardship and a faith crisis because in the midst of the hardship is when we need to cling to the Lord all the more. I do want to talk a little bit about the difficulties, the sufferings that we experience and how we respond. And one of the ways that I see it, just to try to put it into categories and help us understand, uh, there's three different ways that we experience hardships in this life. We can experience hardships because of our own mistakes, because of our own sins, because of our own choices. And when we experience things like that, how should we respond? Well, that's when we should repent. That's when we should stop sabotaging our lives and stop going in those directions and start going the right ways. And a lot of that has to do with what we heard about from the the book of Deuteronomy. If we follow the ways of God, that will cause us to avoid the consequences of our own sin. But there's more reasons for hardship in this world than our own behavior. There's also the fact that this is a cursed world. This is a world full of disease and evil, and there is just even aging. And the whole process we go through, there's just hardships because this is a cursed earth because of the original sin with Adam and Eve. And now this is an earth that's cursed, but hallelujah, we get to believe for the new heavens and the new earth 
where there is no sin and there is no pain and there is no death and there are no tears. And I'm really looking forward to that. But sometimes we go through pain because it's a cursed world and it's subject to decay. And so let's say that you're going through the aging process. I know for me, I deal with plantar fasciitis and it's a hassle. And do I need to repent for that? I don't need to repent. What should I do? What should the response be? Uh, when we're dealing with difficulties along those lines, it should just be to resist. Let's eat right, exercise, do my little stretches and the different uh, therapies that I need to do. Go see the doctor. Let's resist these things, the, the curse of this world. There are things that we need to fight against, that we need to resist. There are other things that are more serious in this world. You know, there's the, the darkness and the evil of this world at the Promise Keepers meeting that I was just at uh, in the middle of July, they talked about all the places around the world where there is still slavery going on. And there are ministries to free people from these oppressive and terrible environments, but it's way more prevalent than what I realized. Everything's underneath the legal systems, but those things are still going on. And we resist those things by supporting those ministries and by stepping in to help people in the ways that we can. So sometimes we must resist. And then there is the spiritual battle. There's the war between heaven and hell, and we step in. And that's where resistance turns into rejoicing. So we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that we are learning and we're growing and we're becoming, and we're also making a difference for the kingdom of God. So when we are fighting the battle, then when we know that we're having hardships, we can rejoice. We can rejoice actually in any one of those places, because when we repent, we can rejoice in forgiveness. When we resist, we can rejoice that God will make it right in the end. And when we're in the middle of the war and we're doing battle against the enemy and we're doing everything we know to do, but we end up uh, getting kicked in the teeth by the enemy, we can rejoice because we know we're in the battle and we will see the victory. Hebrews 12, one through three is about keeping our focus the right way. And it's so easy to get distracted and to start thinking, oh, my life is so hard and so difficult and I have all these problems. You might have a hard, difficult life with lots of problems, but that's not the only thing. There is also a Lord in heaven that loves you. And so let's read Hebrews 12, one through three. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that's the danger, growing weary and losing heart. If you've been suffering and it's been a long time, it's been many years, you thought it would be taken care of before, and now it's continuing to be difficult. I don't want you to grow weary and lose heart. So let's 
Fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's look at the author and the perfecter of our faith. And let's just look at these verses a little bit tighter here. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us throw these things off. So there's our own personal sin we need to get free from, but there's other things that hinder us. And some of those false teachings or just wrong impressions that we get under, like, well, if I do the right thing, everything will work perfectly in my life. And then when something doesn't work perfectly how we want it to, there can be a hindrance, which is it starts to affect our relationship with God. And we're not sure if he loves us. We're not sure if he is there or if he cares and that will hinder us. And we want to throw off that faith crisis, but walk by faith, trust in the Lord, knowing that he is there even when we go through hardships. Because again, uh, as Danielle said, Jesus promises that in this world, we will have trouble. This is a world full of difficulty and pain. There's sin all over the place. There's the curse. It's just, this is a rough place, but God is with us in that hardship. So throw off those misconceptions that hinder and pull you away from God, but draw close to the Lord instead. And let's fix our eyes on Jesus because we all have a race marked out in front of us. We want to run the race with perseverance. Jesus ran his race. Jesus was willing to come to the cross and be crucified, die that we may live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your grace and mercy, and for your great plan of redemption. Thank you that you don't cast sinners aside, but that you redeem, that you don't condemn, but that you set free. And so, Lord Jesus, we honor you for what you've done. We acknowledge what you've done. We will remember and continue to honor you. Thank you, Lord, that what you've done allows us to be transformed and set free to live a new life, and to trust an everlasting life. So we thank you, Lord, for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.